Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 24, produced 26 January 2016. Chances are, if you listen to this podcast, you're either Scottish or have Scott ancestry. But have you ever been to Scotland? I'm Glenn Moyer. If you've not been to Scotland, there's plenty of reasons why you should go, including the opportunity to do some family research. In a moment, my guest and I will share some tips on ancestral research in Scotland, how to find out a bit more about your family, dating back from only a few to perhaps many generations ago back to a time when they lived under the tartan sky. Scotland has been changing the world as we know it for centuries, one innovation at a time. The television, telephone, even the tyres on your automobile are all possible thanks to Scottish ingenuity. And that's just the tease. In 2016, Scotland celebrates the Year of Innovation, Architecture and Design. It's a time to discover unique crafts, textiles and designs, including tartan and Harris tweed. A time to marvel at architecture both old and new, from the Scottish National Gallery in Edinburgh to Glasgow's Clyde Auditorium. A time to wonder at the engineering brilliance of feats like the Fourth Bridge or the towering sculptures of the Kelpies. There's more to Scotland than bagpipes, whisky and breathtaking natural beauty. Come and experience the year of innovation, architecture and design 2016. Come and experience Scotland. Let's face it, you're like millions of other Scott diaspora spread around the world. You know you have Scottish ancestry in your family bloodline, but how much do you know? For most, including myself, it's little more than a name, date and place of birth and or death, and not much else. Wouldn't you like to know more about your family, how they lived, and what life was like back in the Scotland of the 16, 17, or even 1800s? Of course you say. And so you make up your mind to take that long-dreamt-of trip to Scotland. But then what? You won't learn much just cruising on Loch Ness or trekking up and down the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. Theresa Mackay is a second-generation Scottish-Canadian. She's currently completing her Master of Letters in Scottish History through the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland. Like myself, Theresa is a self-confessed affinity Scot, having not been born in Scotland, but exhibiting a strong connection to the land. Born in Montreal, but now living in Victoria, British Columbia, she's owner of the Larchgrove Marketing Group, a consulting company that works with people and projects with Scotland in their soul. And she's on the board of the Victoria Highland Games Association, and keenly involved in plans to build a Scottish cultural centre in Victoria, British Columbia. In short, she knows a thing or two about Scotland, its culture, history, and how to do research. 
I therefore asked Teresa for some tips on visiting Scotland for the purposes of doing family or ancestral research, often referred to nowadays as ancestral tourism. Using myself as the proverbial lab rat, I told Teresa I know my ancestor's name, date and place of birth and death, and I'm going to Scotland to learn more. So now what? First of all, the decision to go to Scotland is really key because you'd be surprised at how many people I talk to that identify with Scotland as being their, uh, you know, place that their ancestors uh, uh, grew up and where they're from uh, or where their family's from, and they don't ever have a need or a want to go to Scotland. They're quite happy being here in North America. Um, so just making that decision to go, I think, is a huge thing because you have the opportunity there there while you're there uh, to do what is known as archive of the feet. So it gives you a real sense of um, where your ancestors came because you are standing on the land that they were potentially on. So it's a totally transformative experience and it's much more, much beyond that sort of what you were just saying, Glenn, about that, you know, I have the name of my ancestor and I know when they were born and I know when when they died, um, but it gives you a much broader sense of perhaps where they um, where they grew up and what they might have experienced. And I always suggest there are really three things that you need to do before you go because planning is really important. You can't just show up. Or, well, you could, <laughs> but I wouldn't suggest it. <laughs> you can't just show up and uh, and say, well, I know the name of my ancestor and I know where they were born and I know where they died and, well, now I'm going to find out more about them. It's much better, a much, much better experience if you do your research ahead of time. So there's really three things that I always suggest. Uh, one is um, not only do your research as much as you possibly can about your family history and take that with you because sure as heck when you get there, you're going to be, you know, there's a different time zone, uh, new people, new places, that sort of thing that you often forget the tiny details that could really be key to your research when you're there. So take that with you. Um, do your archives research in advance. So understand where the archives are that you might be interested in visiting and what they have. And we can certainly talk if you'd like about, um, you know, some uh, tips for that. Um, and the other thing that I always say is you need to read. You have to read some books because don't just rely on the fact that you know the name of your ancestor. Um, and don't also just rely on what I sort of call those coffee table books. You know, those ones, Glenn, that are, um, you know, top 100 favorite tartans or yes. the Highlanders and all their regalia. And they tend to be... All those beautiful photo books that show you all the, the great pictures of Scotland with just a very, very minimal amount of real information. But we can all look at those pictures forever. Exactly. And they're beautiful, you know, and they do um, sort of take us into a, a certain feeling in a certain zone when we're thinking about Scotland. So they have their purpose for sure. But there is a lot of research out there um, that is very readable that you can pick up. And even just choosing one book of a contemporary uh, historian will take you, uh, will really expand your context and your knowledge of uh, your family history and of the history of Scotland. Because, you know, quite honestly, there are a lot of myths out there. There's a lot of myths about the Highland Clearances. And I think um, when we're in North America and we identify with Scotland as being, you know, our key uh, place of our identity, we also grow up knowing or we think we know about the history of Scotland when, in, in fact, um, there's a lot of myth out there. And uh, what we may know may not actually be true. 
So I do have some suggestions for books, if you'd like me to share those with your listeners. Okay, but before we go there, let's give everybody a little bit better understanding of, of what we're talking about. What exactly, when we use the term archival research, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, good point, Glenn. So what we're looking at or what we're talking about is archives that exist that house two-dimensional materials uh, that are available for the public to use in their research. So, for example, uh, they might be personal diaries that have been written hundreds of years ago. It might be a court session that was documented. It could be a letter from one person to another. And archives also include other things, such as recordings of songs and film work and media like that. But generally speaking, when you're looking at archival research in conjunction or connection with genealogical research, what you're looking at is written work. So things that people have written in the past. Okay. So let's get back then to your point about doing some reading and and getting a sense of the true history of Scotland and the land from where our ancestors come, as opposed to perhaps the Braveheart version, as I'll call it, <laughs> uh, the, the, the romanticized, the fantasized, the Hollywoodized uh, Scotland. There is a difference. And you say you have some suggestions on, on where one might do some reading to, to get a better feel for what is truly Scottish history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's lots out there. Braveheart is fantastic, you know, as is Outlander. You know, Outlander is a the series out right now that um, is causing waves everywhere. Yes, and yes. Um, Yeah, and that's amazing to be able to watch those and be entertained. But really, when you're looking at your uh, own family history, what you're really trying to get at is uh, as close to the truth as possible. I think as historians, we can't ever get to the truth but um, because we weren't there. But certainly, you're trying to uh, get rid of any myths that uh, you perhaps grew up with or you were told this was the story when, in fact, you know, it may not be. So reading ahead of time, um, it's not – and what I would suggest Jess here is not scary reading. This is very, very entertaining reading that's written by uh, contemporary historians. So, you know, to get a sort of broad overview of Scotland, sort of from 1700 to present day, if you're needing some context, I'd I'd suggest uh, Sir T.M. Devine's book, The Scottish Nation, A Modern History. Uh, It's a very readable book. Uh, It's quite long because 1700 to the present day is a huge amount of time. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's out by Penguin. It's a very, very readable book, and it doesn't feel like you're going to school, you know, which is what you want to be entertained in many ways. If you're interested in uh, emigration, specifically things like uh, people in your past who may have emigrated from Sky, for example, or the Highlands into the USA, into Canada, uh, James Hunter uh, is a fantastic historian. He's written a book uh, in the past called A Dance Called America, the Scottish Highlands, the United States in Canada. Uh, So that's also very readable. He talks about personal stories of people and connects them to uh, that wider context. Um, Certainly uh, another book by James Hunter called The Scottish Exodus, Travels Among a Worldwide Clan. If you're a MacLeod, you are in luck. (laughs) (laughs) This book Okay. Well, this book uh, in, talks about uh, Clan MacLeod uh, from cover to cover. Another good one um, 
is the Highland clearances. Now, I think there's a lot of myth out there about the clearances in general. So what happened when um, uh, the clearances happened and was everyone uh, forced out of their, of their country, of our country, of Scotland? Um, you know, we often have grown up with these stories that people were forced out as a result mm-hmm. of the clearances. And quite honestly, yeah. that's not entirely true. So to look at all of the sides of that issue, Eric Richards, that's Eric with a C, wrote the book, The Highland Clearances. It is also a book. I think it's like maybe 400 pages. But it's a fantastic look at all of the sides of the clearances issue. And, you know, on the topic of emigration into North America as well, again, Marjorie Harper out of the University of Aberdeen has written a couple of books, one uh, in, on emigration in the 20th century called Scotland No More, The Scots Who Left Scotland in the 20th Century, another one for the 100 years before that called Adventurers and Exiles, The Great Scottish Exodus. So, I mean, I could go on. There's lots, but certainly you know, uh, Jim Hunter, uh, TM Divine, uh, Eric Richards and Marjorie Harper. Those would be several just to start with, pick up one of their books and you're guaranteed to really have a better understanding of uh, Scottish history. Well, and the clearances can be critical in certainly a large number of the immigrants in the United States uh, because so many of us, I'm not Scottish. I have Scott heritage because I know my ancestors began in Scotland, but they were a part of, as were so many thousands of others that we call in the United States, Scott-Irish. Um, because they left Scotland and went to Ireland, many, of course, settling in what's known as the Ulster Plantation, and then immigrating across. That's certainly the route my ancestors took. For example, the ancestors that I know most about in Scotland were originally from the borders, the lowlands area, from the Ayrshire area. And then they moved northward into Bredalbin to where they became more or less under the protection of the Campbells of Bredalbin, and then moved on to Ulster, and eventually uh, another generation then immigrated into the United States through uh, Philadelphia. So I and so many others fall into that Scott-Irish category. And so understanding the clearances, especially if your ancestors have any linkage to the highlands, is probably very critical. Absolutely critical. And uh, you don't do yourself a service if you uh, go forward with the belief that everybody left under duress. Because uh, it really wasn't that way. Um, many people did leave under duress. Absolutely, um, a lot of you know, just people being who they are. They didn't. You wouldn't want to leave your homeland uh, that you knew so well. But a lot of people really left because they were seeking uh, new places. They had a very positive outlook. Um, they wanted to create a better life. So, uh, looking at it from all angles, I think you know, if you tie it back, if your if your family um, it was potentially involved uh, in the clearances or lived uh, in those areas during the times of the clearances, um, if you tie it back to your family and, and ask yourself the question, what happened with my family? Did they, was it uh, a positive experience? Was, were they forced out? Um, did they leave on their own accord? Did some people go and others stayed? Who were those people? Ask yourself, yourself those questions, and I think you begin to develop a larger, richer story about who your family was. So I've made this decision to go to Scotland. You have written and blogged about the National Archives, and I've shared with you a little of my story, my ancestry being from Ayrshire, Bredalbin. How then would I decide 
where to go? Where do, where do I go to find these archives and, and which ones and which museums do I need to go to to start looking into uh, places where I can find more about my family? I, I would think it's not as simple as just sh- going to Scotland and showing up in Bredalbin and then wandering around the streets. There has to be a better plan than that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a definite, definitely a better plan is needed because you're only going to have so much time if you're on vacation, right? So right. you want to try and maximize your time. Um, again, research ahead of time is key. So for museums, what you're looking at, you will obviously want to go to their website and you want to look for the areas um, uh, that they do research in or the collections. So what collections do they actually collect? What items do they actually specialize in? That's going to be really key. And how you want to look at it. So if you had, uh, for example, um, someone in your background that you were looking at by the name of, and I'm just going to make it up, Dan McLeod. Okay, so let's say Dan McLeod, you want to... uh, find out more information about him. You're not necessarily going to find out anything about Dan McLeod at a certain museum, Um, especially if he was not in the military, not gentry, and not in trouble with the law. Chances are he's going to be way under that radar. So what you should do, though, is consider, if you know, what did this Dan McLeod actually do for a living? If you know that he was a farmer, for example, then you want to say, okay, I know he was a farmer. I know he was in Ayrshire, for example. Uh, And so what I'm going to look for is a museum that potentially specializes in farm collections uh, of the time period that he was alive. So that will give you a better insight into potentially the kinds of things that that person may have experienced. And the same thing goes with archives. Um, you know, it's, uh, there are archives all over the country in Scotland, and it would be easy just to assume that the National Archives has everything. So the National Archives uh, is in Edinburgh, and so you just assume, well, that's the National Archives, so they must have everything that I need. That's not actually the case. Again, just like museums, each archive specializes in a certain area. Oftentimes it's geographical. Uh, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes they have the oddest collections that have been donated to them. So all you need to do then, again, in advance is go online and uh, check out what they have. Often they'll have a description of the kinds of materials, um, and sometimes they'll even have a searchable database. We're talking about the use of museums, and an example comes to mind in my own experience. Part of my first trip to Scotland, I spent a week out on the Isle of Skye and stayed in a self-catering cottage that had been an original Taidu, a black house. And on Skye, there is actually a museum that it basically is a, for a lack of a better term, it's sort of a frontier lifestyle museum. It's what we would find here in the States. Their frontier being very different from ours, of course. <laughs> right, yes. um, but it's a brilliant place to go and see exactly what life was like at the time that type of housing was the prominent croft on the Isle of Skye, the, the type of furnishings that were in the home, the type of tools that they worked with. So if I knew that my ancestors, for example, was a crofter on the islands, that would be a brilliant place to go. And I'm not going to learn about dear old great-grandpa Robert by name, but I can come away with a great sense of what his life might be like. And I think that's where what you're telling us. Is that right? Absolutely, Glenn. That's entirely right. I mean, it was not until I actually stepped uh, onto the property for the Highland Folk Museum. I don't know if you've been there, but the Highland Folk Museum is in Newtonmore. Yes, yes. I was going to mention that one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's about a mile long out, outdoor living, right. what they call a living history museum, uh, originally started by the collections of Isabel Grant. And it was not until I actually stood inside a thatched house croft 
uh, and looked at the fire in the, the real live fire, like a real fire in mm-hmm. the center of the home, uh, and saw the uh, hole in the roof and saw that peat basket sitting in the corner with peat in it that I really understood finally what it was like and all of the things that I was reading in the books that I've read prior to going. It wasn't until that moment that I truly understood what it must have been like to live in a craft like that. And ever since then, I have a much better understanding of home, of house construction of that time period. And actually, the, the village that I'm talking about is the one that they used uh, in filming Outlander. So uh, if you do, I know you've been, but if anybody else listening hasn't been, it's it's a lot of fun and it's really worth it. And you're right, you do understand much better about uh, how your ancestors may have lived at that time. And not to get off onto a tangent, but for those who might travel that have not, the, that museum in Newtonmore is just up the road, a very short drive from my favorite place in the world in Scotland, and that's Ardveriki Estate, known to millions around the world who are fans of the TV show Monarch of the Glen as Glen yes. Vogel. That sits, Newtonmore sits right in the middle of monarch country. Um, and, and there's all kinds of filming locations from the TV show to go and, and see there as well. And that, that's how I found that museum. I, was, I literally drove by it every day for two or three days when I was there for a, a week at, uh, at Glen Vogel and kept driving by. And I thought, well, you know, I need to stop and see what this museum's all about. And it's a brilliant museum. Um, it really is. Let's take a step back, though. And I'm curious to get your advice. Um, we're talking about if you know that your ancestor was this or that, here's how you you know you can go and find museums that deal with that. What if you don't know what your ancestor was? For example, again, my eighth great grandfather, Robert Gabriel Barnhill. I know little about him except his name and when and where he was born. How do I try and and learn a little more about him? It's those key hints, I think, that really make a difference. So if you know when and where, uh, that will give you a ton of information. So um, going on to uh, an archives database that is online in advance and plugging in those words. You can plug in his full name. You can plug in his last name uh, into the search functionality. You can also, and here's what I would suggest, is um, spelling was not necessarily, or spelling of last names changed mm-hmm. all the time. Yes, yes it did. So, yeah, so if you're sort of new to that genealogy research, um, don't forget that uh, the that the spelling wasn't regimented long ago. So uh, the name can change several times over. So plug all of that information into um, the search engines. Uh, the t- the place is also another one you can put into search engines. The time um, time period as well that they may have lived. Put that in as well, and you'd be surprised that you'll get information. And again, you're not going to necessarily find Robert Barnhill himself, um, but you will find information that's related to, and perhaps uh, will give you a better understanding of the area that they lived in. Once I have some of that information, will that help me perhaps to narrow down uh, and make the decision, should I go to, for example, Bredalbin? And and are there places in Bredalbin that I might find or might want to see that are relative to my ancestors? Not that I expect to find, you know, the croft they lived in or anything of that nature from the 1600s, 1700s, but it might make, are there ways to make my visit to that area then all the more memorable and meaningful and add something to my understanding of my ancestry? Absolutely. I mean, I think starting with those archives is the best place to go. So if you have that kind of information and you can put it into a search engine of those archives and then see what comes up, 
Um, some you know, There's a, a way to go about this um, that will help sort of direct the geographical areas that you might want to visit and what you might want to do when you're there. So my sort of first tip would be be flexible within your travel plans because when you do the research in advance and you show up at these archives and uh, you take a look at this material, you might actually uncover and discover other areas, other geographical areas, other um, uh, careers that they may have taken on um, or that may have been available in the areas that you're looking at. And then you can then sort of be flexible with your travel plans and uh, and look elsewhere as well while you're there. Um, so there's sort of two ways, though, to go about it, because not all archives, uh, as I said earlier, with the National Archives, National Archives doesn't have everything. Um, and also, the archives that are online with their websites, they may not have a searchable catalog. So you might go onto, this, onto a site of an archives. Let's say you choose the uh, Perth and Kinross archives, for example. You go onto their site. They don't actually have a searchable catalog, but they have a general description of what they have. So what you do then in advance is you send them all the information that you have. So you say, I'm looking for uh, my ancestor, Robert Barnhill. This is what I know about him. Um, I'm planning on showing up uh, into Scotland between this state and this state. And I'm interested to know if you have anything on the following topics. And you try and think of uh, jobs that the person may have done, as I said earlier, or areas that they may have lived in. Um, or you can even just say general things on this area in this time frame. Um, and in this Perth and Kinross uh, example that I'm speaking about, they'll take a look at that, look through the archives for you, and then send you back a whole list of, yes, we have this, that, and the other thing. Or, no, you know what, we don't really. But I'd suggest perhaps going to this archive instead. So if you do that in advance, then when you get there, you get the material, then it's you look at it and you actually start to learn and start to, as I said earlier, build up that story. Uh, and then if you have a flexible travel plan, it will uh, you'll actually have a better experience overall. The advanced homework, if you will, is a critical step in making this as successful as possible. So you can make the most of your time in Scotland. You, you don't just hop the plane, fly across the pond, knock on the front door of the National Archives and say, hi, show me your everything you've got on Robert Barnhill. <laughs> You're probably not going to get a very good welcome, I would think, at that point. <laughs> No, and you know what? Um, you're yeah, you're wasting. Uh, you're actually wasting your own time. So it's not the best way to go about it at all. Um, the the thing that you want to do is not only that advanced research that we've been talking about. Um, and emailing the archives that you're potentially interested in going to with your travel details to say, I will show up on Tuesday, October, whatever, and um, I was wondering if this information is available. You not only do it just to see if they have the information uh, that you need or the archives that you need, but you do it to give them advance notice. So some of the archives that, you're, that may be of interest to you and your family and the areas um, that you're researching may actually be in a storeroom in 10 streets over. So they they need time to be able to pull that information for you. Um, and on the flip side of that is um, they may, you may actually say, I, gee, I would like to see this item. They may send you a note back and, and say that item is actually in conservation right now and won't be available for another six months. So you do need to contact them uh, in advance. In addition, what is often really great, especially with smaller archives, um, like the Perth and Kinross one that I mentioned earlier, is that sometimes they will 
pull the information or the archives for you in advance so that when you show up to the archive and you say, here I am, uh, as I said, I was coming at you know nine o'clock on this day, then they will have everything ready for you on a shelf. And it just decreases the amount of time uh, so that you're really, really efficient uh, with your time when you're there. And as you say, having a, a flexible travel schedule, for example, in my case, if I did not know in advance about uh, my relatives from uh, my ancestors from Ayrshire moving up to Bredalbin, that might be something that I would discover in an archive in Ayrshire. And I might not have any plan whatsoever to have been anywhere near Bredalbin. But if I have a flexible travel schedule, it now might become someplace that I want to go and visit and see and, and try to learn more at. Exactly, which is what is so exciting about that. I mean, when you do actually find um, pieces of your background like that, um, that's just, it's absolutely thrilling. I mean, you can sit there and be holding these papers from the 17, 1800s, or even medieval, if that's how far back you're going, um, and and just uh, reading and reading and reading, and you can feel like you're getting nowhere, and suddenly you find this piece of information that changes your entire perspective. So it's quite exciting. And, you know, I should also say, Glenn, that the there's sort of a second part to the prep that you want to do because in archives, um, you sometimes need types of ID. So, for example, some archives, they just say, well, bring your ID, and then you sign a form, and then you can go ahead and start because all of these archives are precious materials that um, so security is very high um, at various at a lot of the archives um, because it, to lose these these items would be disastrous I mean they are priceless artifacts or archives rather uh, the other thing is is that some archives require uh, you to get their their ID. A good example of that is the National Archives or the National Records of Scotland in Edinburgh. Um, they have a specific kind of ID, so you need to show up with two passport pictures uh, so that they can use that to create your ID before you can use anything. So not only do you have to account for the time that that takes, but you should also do your passport pictures ahead of time and bring those with you. Because the last thing you want to be doing is if you're in Edinburgh for the first time ever, trying to find a place that does passport <laughs> pictures, that's just a royal waste of time. I'm do sure it. there's one on the Royal Mile, but I wouldn't want to go look for it. No, me neither. Do it at home where you know people and you can get it. <laughs> right. Let's talk a little bit about doing this research. For the person who's like me, I have a, thank goodness, I have a cousin who does all of our family genealogy, and, and she's a whiz at it. I am not. It's like speaking Greek to me. So I'm hearing a lot of what what you're saying, but I'm wondering, for a layperson like me, is this something that I can do, or how would you allay the fears of someone who says, wow, this is sounding like a, a, an awfully daunting prospect to try to do all of this advanced research and, and then go over there and, and turn that into results while I'm in Scotland? Well, I would say, for one thing, don't put too much pressure on yourself. You could go to a ton of archives and do a ton of research and come away with not much more than you did when you left. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, an, it's, an, it's always uncharted territory. So you want to make sure that you're not going, I'm going to discover the next, you know, the past 500 years of my family's history. Um, you need to just enjoy Scotland for what it is and enjoy the archives for what they are and not put too much pressure on yourself to, you know, fully document all of that material. Um, it can be a sort of a scary uh, uh, circumstance or situation to go into an archives if you've never done it. 
because it is uh, there is a system in place. Every archives has their system in place. Um, but just remember, remember, it's like a library. It's like a library of reference materials that you order and that you wait for and that they bring to you and that you get to have in your hands and you get to have it basically for as long as you want that day. Sometimes you can even work on it all day and then put it and ask them to put it aside for you the next day. Um, you can even take pictures of some of the materials. So uh, you have to ask. Uh, certainly there are um, guidelines that are put in place. Some pieces you can't photograph, others you can, but you have to ask to get permission to do that. Um, but a librarian, it's an archivist obviously, but a, a librarian type person is there to help you out. And uh, the great thing about it is that I have never run into an archivist who is not passionate about their work and who is not enjoying the fact that you're loving the material that they're bringing out to you <laughs> and that you're actually reading it because there are so many archives that are stored that people never actually access and never actually read. And it's, uh, it's like a diamond mine waiting to be mined. Um, so, archivists in general are extremely helpful, very nice. And if you just say, hey, you know what, this is my first time ever being in an archives. I kind of, I read your website. I have some research. You know, here's what I'm looking for. Um, I contacted you ahead of time. They're really, really helpful. So I'd say just take a big, deep breath, walk in, and uh, you'd be surprised at what you can get your hands on and take a look at. Well, that was going to be my next question, because I was going to, to offer the same uh, analogy, that of, of a library, and ask, are the people there, in your experience, have they been, are they generally very helpful, especially with people who feel certainly out of their league, uh, perhaps, in a facility like that, and, and trying to con trying to, to construct research of that nature. Um, and, and so I was going to ask, are the staff and the archivists who are there generally very um, helpful and welcoming, um, especially when, as I say, they're often dealing with people for whom this is probably a first-time experience and, and they are feeling a bit daunted by it all? They are super helpful. And, you know, the other thing is, too, I have found the best pieces of information or best archives when I've gone to them and said, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. Like the ones that I've ordered, it's just not getting me the information that I need. And I wondered if you had any other suggestions. Here are the topics that I'm looking at. And sure enough, they'll be like, yes, I know exactly what you could look at. Or why don't you take a look at this over here? And it's um, you get the best suggestions from them. So they're very helpful. Helpful. They want you to be there. Um, you know, at the same time, there are rules to follow. When you go to the National Records of Scotland, which is the National Archives, uh, it's really locked down. You can't um, move anything. You have to wait at your seat. Uh, they assign you a seat. You have to sit there. You order things, and then you wait, and they bring it to you. Um, so, and you can't, and once you're done, you have to put it in a certain spot. Sometimes there are rules around how the things are handled. Uh, as I said earlier about the photo, uh, any photography is also, there are rules around that. So some are quite locked down, like National Records of Scotland, but they're big organizations. So you expect that. They have a lot of people in their archives. Other ones that are quite a bit smaller, they might only have one archivist. They may only have one desk to sit at. Um, the rules are a little bit more lax. Obviously, there's security there too, but it's a little bit of a different experience. But regardless, though, no matter where you go, I find um, the archivist really willing to help out, and uh, you just have to ask. You mentioned not to put too much pressure on yourself. What 
kind of expectations should I set for myself if I'm embarking to do some archival research in Scotland? What is a reasonable expectation of what I might or might not come away with so that I don't put too much pressure on myself? I'd say definitely um, there are two areas to tackle that tend to be the easiest. One is anything related to the career of someone uh, that is one of your ancestors. So, for example, if they were uh, a in farming, if they were an innkeeper, any sort of general topics like that, you can find out all kinds of information. Um, recently, uh, I was doing some research on an innkeeper or on innkeepers in general in the Breadalbane area. Area, actually, Glenn, and I know oh. that's uh, a, an interesting sort of area for you, given your family. Yes. Um, but I was in the National Records of Scotland in Edinburgh, and I came across a bill of entertainment that was written in about um, 1793, 4, 5, somewhere in there. Uh, and it was on the occasion of Lord Breadalbin's marriage in May of that year. And it was written by an Alexander Morrison who was an innkeeper. So clearly what I could read from this uh, bill, it was just an invoice. It was like an invoice that we would see, but it was written in the late 1700s. Um, clearly from this invoice, uh, there was a celebration after the wedding of Lord Breadalbin, and this innkeeper, Alexander Morrison, was uh, had sent him a bill. And the bill basically outlined everything that went on, everything that they ate, everything that they drank. So part of it includes mention of 110 country people, which from reading it, it seems to me that those were uh, perhaps tenants uh, on the properties mm -hmm. of uh, Lord Breadalbin and not the company, because there's definitely a, a difference between country people and company in right. this in this so-called invoice. But what was interesting is you got to see that they served brandy, wine, toddy, and beer at the event. Uh, and they also ordered wine and punch when they toasted Lady Breadalbin's health at the dance. So just from that one invoice, 1796, and all I had to do was look up uh, Breadalbin, anything that was associated with Breadalbin, and I was looking for innkeepers at the time, and sure enough, I came across this. So finding that tells us that there was an innkeeper there, that obviously the inn was big enough to have that many people. Um, it tells us the kinds of uh, drinks that were served, uh, and maybe some of the uh, ceremonies that went along with it. And that's the kind of thing that you come away with and you kind of go, okay, well, maybe my ancestor wasn't actually at that wedding um, and uh, didn't actually partake in that. But my ancestor would have known if they lived in the area uh, that there was an inn and that there would have been a celebration at that time. So that is the kind of information that you that you come away with. Again, uh, don't put a lot of pressure on yourself, but sometimes you can find these gems that really tell you a lot. Well, that's interesting because one of the, the questions that haunts me about my uh, my Scottish ancestry, since I know that one of my families of ancestors, the Breckenridges, did in fact move up to Breadalbin, and all I've been able to find in the reference books was they were under the influence of, and, and trying to find out exactly <laughs> what that means. As a friend of mine suggested, it says probably means they had a drink at the pub together, so... <laughs> <laughs> Not really sure, but but it, it raises the question. One of the the brilliant places to visit in uh, Scotland is, of course, Glencoe, and the Campbells played very 
you know, prominently in that, the Campbells of Bredelman. My understanding is they did not participate in the actual massacre, but their troops were assigned basically to block one of the exits. And so as, as I explored around Glencove, I couldn't help but wonder, were my ancestors perhaps here at that dreadful time in Scottish history? And I don't know that I'll ever find the answer to that, but that's one of those things that, that is great about doing some ancestral research in Scotland and, and then visiting those places, if only to ask, were my ancestors here? Might I be walking on the same ground that they walked on? Mm-hmm. Well, and seeing, you know, if you've uh, never been to Glencoe and then you show up for the first time and seeing that landscape oh, is an awe-inspiring experience. And, yeah. and you think about um, the attack that happened there and uh, where people would have hidden and how they would have gotten from place to place. And it really just expands um, your thinking. You know, you don't yeah. read. I find that with those experiences and then you come back home and you read again about Glencoe and what happened there, It's I don't feel it's as flat anymore because inside, you know, in your head you have this memory, you have your photos and you kind of go, that is, you know, an awe-inspiring uh, event that happened. Well, and, and you have a three-dimensional feel for it, I think, yes. because as we were discussing early on, the coffee table picture books. There are tons of them out there, and there are some beautiful pictures of Glencoe that you can find in any number of books. But I can tell you, having now been there, and I'm sure you have too, looking at it in a coffee table book and standing there and and seeing that expanse of landscape and imagining what it must have been like to live at those times and to have to have escaped the horror of that attack and live off the land. It does, it brings it all into an entirely new perspective and an entirely new level of understanding that you can never have from just having read a book or looked at pictures or even watched uh, watched a movie. It just, being there, you have, I had at least, a, just an overflow of all kinds of emotions um, knowing what I did of the history there and of possibly some family involvement and those types of things. And and that to me is a part of what archival research must be like and must be all about. And, and that's just being there and seeing it in person and experiencing it and broadening your own perspective of what it means to you personally. Exactly. That's exactly it, Glenn. And it's taking it beyond what you would normally look at for genealogy research. You know, I should mention um, in Edinburgh, we were talking earlier about the National Records of Scotland, which is really has sort of two parts to it. So one is the historical search room, which is the archives that we were just, that I was talking about, about the Brettlebane marriage. Um, but there's also the Scotland's People Centre that is in there as well. And that's where you're going to find more information on the things that we were talking about earlier, which was birth, death, marriage uh, records, census records, that kind of thing. So that's also a really key resource to look at. But I think combining that birth, death, marriage, basic information kind of information that you get at, say, Scotland's People Centre or that you do online yourself with those archives that we were just talking about and then being on the ground in those areas really just expands your knowledge and really allows you to connect uh, with your past. And I think the other piece to that is talking to the locals. I think that's really key. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's so great to go down the Royal Mile in Edinburgh and go to, uh, let's say, you know, Loch Ness, some of the touristy places that sure. um, we might uh, want to go to and that are fantastic. But spending time with people who actually live there gives you another, yet another dimension to that story that you're trying to reconstruct. 
I, I think that's so true because I, I know in my two travels to Scotland so far, I made a point. I've gotten involved in some online forums and whatnot, taking part in Twitter chats. And I had made a number of online friends. And then it was a point of my journey over there to meet those people in person and, and to put name, you know, put face with name and, and shake their hands and, and have a wee dram or two. And I feel so lucky to have been able to do that because now I have a cadre of, of great friends who live in Scotland that I know personally that I've spent time with on my two trips there. And they've taken me and shown me around some of their favorite parts of Scotland. One friend took me on a, on a tour of, of his hometown, which was Glasgow. Uh, another dear friend picked me up at the ferry and took me on a half-day tour of her home on the Isle of Butte, a place that I would not had no intention of visiting um, when I set my itinerary, and it wasn't except for the fact that we hooked up as friends, and then she invited to to show me around, and so I got a beautiful tour of a part of Scotland I would never have been to without having made that connection. So finding and, and talking to locals either beforehand uh, online through places like Twitter chats, or there are a lot of great Scottish forums and groups on Facebook that one can get involved with and can even perhaps start your genealogy research if you haven't done that. So I'm very high on meeting and talking with the locals. Even if you just go to a pub, which I did one evening for dinner, traveling by myself, didn't know a soul, went to a pub to have dinner and struck up a conversation with a group of folks behind me and had a wonderful evening, you know, just chatting. And uh, that's a great experience and certainly gives you, again, a heightened, I think, benefit to traveling in Scotland rather than just being on a bus tour group. There's nothing wrong with doing group tours and that sort of thing. I don't mean to imply that. But there are ways that you can go and things you can do that can really enhance your experience. Um, And if you're looking for a sense of your ancestors, even just sitting at a pub and having a chat with some of the locals sometimes can enhance that level of your experience. Absolutely. And it gives you a whole different experience and connection when you start talking to people who actually live there. Because I think as North Americans, uh, you know, you were mentioning earlier about Braveheart, I'd mentioned Outlander. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, we see in uh, media in North America. And we all have the coffee table books and everything that we were uh, just mentioning. But it's. And we think we're experts on Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. We do. And. But you know what? We are a different, uh, we have a different perspective. You know, it's a diasporan perspective. It is not a local perspective. And so when you go and talk to people who live there, and you're right, hanging out in the local pub is honestly one of the best places um, because the minute they hear your accent, uh, they will know you're not from here. And um, even just <laughs> hanging at the bar and ordering a, a beer, the next thing you know, you're into a conversation about, well, where are you from and what are you doing? And and uh, and just getting that perspective about uh, perspective of how they view their own country and their own culture is a real eye-opener as well. And it's no different than, you know, someone coming to your own country and your own hometown and, and you taking them around and saying, well, you know, the tourists go there, but here's what my hometown is really about. It's exactly the same thing. And it, it is a, a great opportunity to connect. You know, that's very true because I'm originally, I'm, I'm a native Texan and goodness knows that, you know, there are certainly stereotypes about Texans all around the world. And it's always fun when I've had friends from overseas come and visit Texas and get to see what it's really like. And the first thing is we don't all ride horses. We don't all wear 10 <laughs> gallon hats or wear a six gun and we don't all have oil wells in the backyard. 
Um, and so once you get past some of those things, and it's sort of true uh, when you go to Scotland, they don't all wear kilts all the time. They don't all play the bagpipes, um, you know, and you don't eat haggis three meals a day. <laughs> so <laughs> if that's you, very true. If you get very past true. some of those stereotypes, and and the great thing that I think we have to share with people, as I know, I'm sure you've experienced it, and I did, and it's well known that Scots are a very welcoming people. I, I mentioned that evening in the pub, the group of people that I turned and spoke to, I was going to take the train in from where I was staying into center uh, town center down in Glasgow the next day to meet up with my friend and take the tour that I was telling you about. Um, but I didn't know where the train station was. Well, the people behind me, there was a group of 20-somethings. I'm in my 60s. There was a group of 20-somethings at a table behind me. And so I, at a proper point, turned and casually asked if they could tell me where the train station was. And we got into a conversation, and I found here's a group of 20-something young people that were very accommodating, very fun to talk with, and they welcomed me into their chat. And, and it kind of like I pulled up a table, a chair to their table and, and spent the rest of my evening after dinner there having a great conversation with this group of young people I'd never met before. And so I, I found that very reassuring. And on a number of occasions when I would simply pull over and stop and ask someone for directions if I got turned around, which I did more than once, again, I found in my case Everyone that I bumped into or, or had the occasion to approach and have even the, the most casual of conversation were very welcoming, very happy to help me. And, and a lot of times we did strike up that conversation because they would immediately know I wasn't from Scotland. So it was like, well, where are you from? Why are you here? You know, what are you doing in Scotland? What, where, what, what have you seen? Where have you been? Um, and it would lead to really great you know, exchange, um, sometimes very brief, other times more detailed. But uh, don't be afraid of approaching and talking to the locals, when, especially in Scotland, because I think if you do, uh, if you stay in your own little group and, and talk just to your, your friend that you're traveling with, you're going to miss, again, a huge part of the experience, whether you're there for research or just on vacation. Exactly. I would totally support that um, idea, Glenn. You know, certainly pubs are great and it's it's different than pubs in North America. Oh. You know, we're so used to coming here and we have yeah. our own table and nobody talks to each other unless you're at the bar. And it, it's a totally different experience. You go there and you sit down and you're expected to share tables. You're expected to say hello to your next door neighbor that's sitting beside you. You yeah. know, it's, it's a totally different experience. So that is a great place to get uh, information. And it does connect back to ancestral research in the sense that you can show up to a pub and have, um, especially if you're sort of living temporarily in a spot, even if you're in the same spot for a week and, and you go into the pub at night after night uh, just to have your evening meal or whatever, it gives that opportunity um, for you to talk to locals and find out more and, and share the fact that you're there exploring your family history and you know that your family grew up in this area and sure enough there's going to be uh, likely an elder or someone who's really into research as well and the next thing you know you're finding out things that just don't exist uh, in archives or public record and you know the other really uh, great opportunity to connect with locals especially in the highlands is a Kaylee yes. and the best place to find out about those is um, posters near local community centers or in libraries and things like that. And if you can find just a regular, you know, weekly Kaylee, uh, especially in the summertime, uh, often in the winter as well, I shouldn't say only summer, but um, that's a great place. And I can remember going to uh, finding a, a Kaylee in Glenlivet and it was a regular sort of weekly Kaylee that they did uh, with a whole bunch of young people who were musicians. And the whole we walked in and it was a 
very small community town hall there in Glenlivet and we walked in and I saw the person who pumped my gas and the person who sold my bread and the person <laughs> at the you know right. the other place down the street and it was really the whole town was there and we had the most wonderful time we're totally welcomed and again it's just an opportunity for you to have a better understanding about how that area uh, lives today how people there live today uh, and give you a greater connection to your past so to wrap this up then let's um, kind of take a step back from where we started we're talking about obviously doing ancestral research in Scotland when you're visiting there. But you have to know before you go, you have to do some research, as we said, to learn as much as you can, to plan your activities, the archives you want to see and that sort of thing. Let's go to the very beginning. Let's just assume that we have a listener who is thinks they have some Scottish heritage, maybe knows they have a little bit of Scottish heritage, but really has not done any genealogy work. Where would you suggest they start? Are sites like Ancestry.com and those kinds of places that we see on you know, ads for all the time, is there value in at least using that as a starting point? What are your recommendations for a person who probably knows they have some Scott ancestry but really doesn't know much and wants to find out as much as they can before they may be planning to take a trip to Scotland? Yeah, I think, you know, if you've never done it before, probably um, sites like Ancestry.com are very user-friendly, which is terrific. Uh, the the uh, concern or the thing, just the caution that you have to remember is that it's really easy um, to sometimes for people to get swayed in terms of the information. For example, uh Everyone says that their ancestry includes kings, queens, and princes and princesses. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Everybody says that. We're all related to Mary, Queen of Scots. Let's just admit it and go on. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? There are definitely people who are related to her. I'm certain of it. But there are a lot of people who are not. And, you know, to no no fault of our own, if we look at genealogical records, um, it was really used as a storytelling opportunity for political and power reasons. So why wouldn't you say that, you know, 300, 400, 500 years ago, uh, you were related to a king so-and-so or a prince so-and-so? Why wouldn't you do that if you had political uh, reasons, if you were in, if you lived in the medieval times, for example? So, you know, when you when you go in with that knowledge to say, you know, all of what I read may not necessarily be entirely accurate, then you'll be fine. Um, and uh, the the challenge often is, is that if your ancestors, as I said earlier, were not in military or were not gentry class or were not in trouble with the law, then um, sometimes they're really uh, challenging to find. But I, my suggestion would be is to st- start with Scotland's People. So Scotland's People has a website. If you go there, that has a ton of information, everything from Catholic parish registers to coats of arms, if you're interested in finding out more about your own coat of arms, uh, valuation rules, which are basically property ownership. Uh, they'll have wills and testaments. So a lot of the basic genealogical uh, sources that you need are at Scotland's People online. And then once you've done that, if you want to see some of the um, materials in person, then you can actually go to Scotland's People Centre in in Edinburgh and take a look at that. But I'd suggest that's probably your first place to start. Uh, And then uh, you never know what you're going to uncover. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, it's a case of just because your name is Stuart doesn't mean you're Scottish royalty. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? Uh, Just because your name is spelt M-C, 
something something. So MC McLeod uh, doesn't mean that you're Irish. Mm, you know, there's right. there is that uh, another myth out there. We were talking earlier about spelling. Uh, often, you know, North America, we say, well, if you're M-A-C, if your net last name is spelled M-A-C, then you're from Scotland. But if it's M-C, you're from Ireland. That's completely incorrect. So, <laughs> so you know, there's all these little tricks and tips that you learn. And certainly there's lots of blogs on genealogy. Um, and I also suggest connecting with your local Scottish genealogy group, if you have one, um, or even just a genealogy group in general, because they'll have lots of tips and tricks and uh, that will actually um, speed up your search and help you along the way. You're absolutely right about that spelling thing. I, one of these things you see on Facebook says, enter your name and find its history. Well, I put in Moyer, and it tells me that it's Irish and, and possibly shortened from Mac Moyer, MC. And of course, my friends, because they know of my um, my love for Scotland. Um, some of my friends have taken to calling me Mac Moyer as a joke. Um, and I had never seen Mac Moyer. And I know for for a fact that my line of Moyers um, actually started in Switzerland, went to Germany, then across Europe and, and onward. But I had never seen the name Mac Moyer before. So you can't take all those genealogy games and quizzes on Facebook at, at face value either. <laughs> no, you can't, unfortunately. They're very fun to do, of course. But but you can't. And I mean, just really understanding where your um, family came from and just sort of debunking those myths, I think is really important too. And I grew up thinking that um, because I was Scottish and my last name was Mackay, the Mackays fought for the Scottish side in Culloden. Well, little did I know, 40,000 zillion words read later, <laughs> I discovered <laughs> that um, the Mackays actually felt for the gov- or fought for the government side. They didn't fight for uh, what would be termed the Scottish side. And of course, then at that point, too, I was discovering that Culloden was not a Scots versus English war. It was much more complicated than that. And often there were Scots on both sides who were fighting each other, one of which was the clan Mackay. So, you know, it took me a while for that, took a while for that to sink in for me, uh, because I had grown up thinking that, well, of course, we were fighting on the Scots side and on the on the British government side. But uh, once you determine that, I think it sort of opens up several doors uh, about where you should be researching and what you should be looking at. And I think that's what's exciting, too. It's, it's like a, a treasure hunt, really. A treasure hunt, indeed. My thanks, as always, to my guest, Teresa Mackay. If ancestral tourism is of interest to you, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode on our website, at www.underthetartanskye.scot where you'll find links to the authors, museums, archives, and more that we've been discussing here. On a production note, I'd like to draw your attention to our new closing theme. It's a track by the Louisiana Scottish band and my friends Smithfield Fair called Swept Away. This and other occasional musical elements in the podcast are used with their very kind permission. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalev, Agas Alapa Gibra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glen L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, 
Check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>